Chosen as one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100 entrepreneurs, Jeff Krasno is the founder and CEO of Commune Media. Known as the Masterclass of Wellness, Commune offers in-depth courses and a popular podcast hosted by Jeff himself. Featuring long-form interviews from well-being leaders from Deepak Chopra to Russell Brand. Jeff is also the creator of Wonderlust, a global series of wellness events. He pins a weekly essay exploring spirituality, culture, and politics that is distributed to over a million people. He is also the author of three books, including his latest, Communion, 2020, The Middle Path, Back to Reason, Morality, and Each Other a collection of essays that provide a path through critical issues impacting Americans today. He delves into topics such as the emotional repercussions of the COVID-19 pandemic, relationships, grief, and the country's deep political divide. Jeff's writing has also appeared in the Huffington Post and Fast Company. Jeff, oh my goodness, it's so good to have you on the Get Loved Up podcast. Uh, good to be with you. Koya, it's such a joy and so happy that our lives have converged the way they have over the past few months. Absolutely. And the funny thing is, is that we've been in, in each other's worlds for a very long time because our history goes all the way back to the Wonderlust festivals. And for people who've never seen a Wonderlust festival, it's basically where thousands of people gather together to enjoy yoga, music, food. I'm probably, you could probably talk about it more, but I want to kind of first just kind of start there with kind of how you created Wonderless and what that means to you. Yeah, well, boy, it was a, a journey. Um, obviously, the name Wanderlust itself reflects that journey, the innate desire to travel. Um, of course, I've always seen it metaphorically as a journey inward <laughs> towards uh, self-examination and self-exploration. Um, but really, the genesis for the idea came um, from my wife, which is uh, a consistent theme <laughs> in my relationship that's been... Um, now uh, has a 33 or 34 year longevity. So uh, I lived for a very long time in New York and I was running a music company. It was a record label and a management company and we were putting on big shows in New York City. And my office was right in the financial district, uh, just two blocks north of the World Trade Center. And 9-11 happened um, and you know, in the wake of 9-11, New York was a really unique and special place to be. There was obviously tremendous collective grief, but sort of emerging out of that collective grief was a really good-natured, beautiful spirit that really brought people together and also inspired people to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise done. And uh, my wife was one of those people. And she decided that she was going to build a yoga studio at Ground Zero. So, um, and in on the floor right above my office. So, um, and that community enterprise opened uh, in 
January, February of 2002. And I got, you know, uh, what I would call a front row seat to witness the power of not just yoga and meditation, but yoga and meditation in combination with community. I got to see that transformational power really heal people. And uh, people would go in and practice their asana and sweat and collapse on their mats and emerge into this tiny little rickety vestibule. And mind you, this was not an equinox. This was well before there was a yoga studio uh, on every street corner. This was the most uh, humble studio you could imagine up a pair of like cockeyed lime green steps, you know, where, you know, you were hanging your coats and putting your shoes in a closet basically. And, uh, and people would come out of class and there would be like a little futon there and a tiny little lobby and people would um, just really have these deep, profound engagements with each other. And, um, and really heal their grief through community and, and also rediscover their creative spark. And, and obviously, this was a very hyperbolized, uh, exacerbated situation. You know, 9-11 was so visceral for, for so many people. Um, you know, different than COVID in a way, just because the visual uh, component of it was, was so stark. Um, and... Uh, um, and certainly for the denizens of lower Manhattan, you know, e even in greater relief. So just being a fly on the wall and watching that phenomenon happen really bent the arc of my personal and professional life. And I was like, okay, well, I know I love music. I spent my whole life playing music and producing music and making large scale music events happen. But this is really calling me on a soul level. So how do I Reese's peanut butter cup that that situation? <laughs> um, and so, you know, Skylar put her chocolate in my peanut butter. That sounds a little gross, but um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think, you know what I mean. And um, peanut butter is actually delicious. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's still my favorite, favorite ice cream. And uh, and uh and yeah, we conjured this this idea, this notion of wanderlust, and you know over you know over the next few years, um, before we actually put a stake in the ground, you know, Skyler uh, started leading retreats to Costa Rica, and I would bump along uh, in the name of yoga uh, on little puddle jumpers and in the back of trucks, you know, out to um, the Osa Peninsula you know, right where the rainforest meets the the beach there. It has a lovely little break and you'd be out there with, you know, 30 or 35 people just kind of in the prime of their creativity, waking up, you know, with the sun, meditating, doing yoga, eating good local food, but, you know, it's just the food that was growing there. And, um, and then at night, you know, playing music and storytelling and having a glass of wine or, or two and, you know, random hookups happening in the, in the bushes or whatever. So it, it wasn't this sanctimonious um, yoga conference. It was really vital. And, um, and this was uh, 
this was kind of the the germinating point for wanderlust and it's like you know god this community is really making these active choices to live in their best self and it's also really fun <laughs> uh, and, and joyous and, and not all not completely monastic it was the middle path somewhere between asceticism and and sensual pleasure so you know in the uh, in the rainforest of costa rica i kind of conjured this notion of like could we make the biggest yoga retreat in the world um, and if we were going to do that what would that look like and so i started to key in on ski resorts in um in north america in the summer because there were the these were these places of epic natural beauty um you know you just drive up to them and you know you were you had people at hello you know they're just so um epic with hiking trails and you know uh, snow-fed lakes and ponds and you know just like incredible places and they were absolutely empty in the summer and there was tons of infrastructure there uh hotels and bed base and you know food and beverage infrastructure and boring things but very necessary things like forklifts and operation staff and um and uh, so i went out and just did a whole bunch of deals with ski resorts and uh, they were you know, over the moon to have us. And this was really in 2009 when we did our first event. So they were really just kind of coming out of the, the, um, the, the recession. And, uh, and it was a, it was a really great way for us to, to get established. And then, yeah, the, you know, the rest of it was really, to be honest, really a lot of fun because, you know, it was, it gave me the opportunity to reach out to, so many brilliant authors and thought leaders and teachers like yourself and forge these incredible relationships and bring all these teachers, these dispensers of wisdom all into one place for three or four immersive days. And that collective power drew 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people. I mean, you know, there was a, we did hit it at a fortunate moment, you know, um, and, uh, um, you know, there was a, a good amount of luck in the timing. And yeah, I mean, and then, it, you know, it turned out to be just, I don't know, the most amazing ride of my life for 10 years. You know, my, I had very young children, three daughters, and my wife and I and our three daughters, we focused our entire lives really around traveling. We were like a traveling circus, uh, modern version, um, you know, going to all of these really amazing locations and organizing these really large scale events that fostered a tremendous amount of community. And uh, when I look back on it now, the thing that I'm most proud of and I also think the thing that made the most difference in people's lives were the relationships that were forged at these events. So many people started businesses or met their partners or found a new teacher. And, um, and that was uh, very gratifying. Wow. Thank you so much for that beautiful trip down. Memphis. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I never knew the origin story or, or where it started. So thank you for taking us on that journey. And I know many people listening have been to Wonderlust. I mean, that's where I met a lot of people um, just teaching at those festivals, teaching acro yoga and, and things like that. And so during that time, I know it wasn't all, you know, unicorns and rainbows. I know it was tough. A lot of people, that many people. Can you share with us probably the three biggest lessons that you learned from running such a large-scale event? Yeah, well, there was this veneer of creativity on the top of Wanderlust, but really behind that crust, we were a logistics company, and... um, you know, it, it looked kind of sparkly, but when you're operating, you know, when, at our peak, we were operating, well, there were 68 wanderlust events in 20 countries, and we operated about half of those. So, you know, we had multiple semis running to and fro, and, um, and in a way, uh, one of the biggest lessons that I learned was that scale is not always the most important thing. I was extremely growth minded at that time in my life. Um, And here I was running a health and wellness company, but I'm not sure the internal infrastructure and financials were all that well (laughs) or healthy. Um, And for me, it was always about doing more and and that was there was a good instinct there i really wanted to build the biggest community possible around these teachings and modalities because i think they're really important but i i kind of sanctified growth on the altar of my own well-being <laughs> um and uh and really i think tried to do too much um, and I think that that was a, a great lesson um, was that, you know, if we had done probably less events, each one of them would have been more special and, uh, and probably more profitable and more successful. But we kept adding more and more and more. I kept chasing operational efficiency and never quite got there. Um, so, you know, that was that was one thing I think we were overly growth minded and that led to 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 me always having to chase to be honest more revenue so it almost um i became almost addicted to speaking the language of growth and the people that would respond to the language of growth were other people that were growth minded. So I found myself sitting in the boardrooms of, you know, Adidas and Toyota and Nestle and whatever, trying to like structure seven figure deals, you know, that basically were sponsorships where, you know, I was sort of the gatekeeper to a certain demographic that these big brands wanted to reach. And, um, and I'm not sure I had a lot of self-awareness about some of the hypocrisy there. Um, and it's not that these P 
people were bad people. They were incredibly well-intentioned people. In fact, you know, we weren't dealing with the combustion engine side of Toyota. We were dealing with, you know, electric vehicles and, and, um, and, you know, the Prius model or, you know, with Adidas, we were working with this company called Parley that was making apparel from recycled plastic bottles. And, you know, I was sitting there um, in uh, Nestle, headquarters in Stanford, Connecticut, trying to convince them to like, you know, make their water bottles compostable, like even the cap. And we got into this long argument about the cap, you know, it was like, it was kind of absurd. And, um, but I was almost, but that was the language I was speaking so that the people that I was attracting in, into my life were other people that were looking for big scale and lots of impressions. And, you know, and then I became very accountable to those people um, of like, well, you, you know, you said 7,000 people were going to come and only 5,000 people showed up. So like, what's the make good on that? And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm just trying to do a yoga festival. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, and I, I, I think I lost, it's not like I lost my way, but, what I did take away from it was that, you know, the means do need to converge with the ends. Um, and if you're going to run a company, I would say any company, but particularly one in the field of health and wellness, then that the internality, the, the internal company needs to reflect those same values. And, um, and then I suppose the last thing I would say, which is connected to that, is that I wasn't very team oriented. Um, I, uh, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about the internal team and how important and essential that was to running a business. Um, I mean, that's a little bit of an overstatement. Obviously, some of my best friends were worked at Wanderlust right with me. I mean, we were in the trenches. It's like when you work in an events business, it's, it's 9 to 5. It's 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. It's not 9 a.m. to 9 to 5 p.m. Oftentimes, and, you know, when you're sitting there at, you know, 12 in the morning or, you know, midnight, uh, you know, trying to close up a yoga venue or whatever we were doing at these festival sites, you know, you do make these re relational bonds that are very, very tight and, um, and, uh, and became really integral to my life. At the same time, I'm not really sure I invested myself in the personal, in the personal development of my team. And if there's any way that I've grown, it is, uh, it is in that respect where now, in my executive capacity at Commune, I, I really am much more concerned with the professional and personal development of my team. And that has myriad benefits because it takes tremendous pressure off me if, you know, if you can develop a lot of fluency around the mission of your business and really create 
and really democratize that dream. So it becomes other people's dream. And you give them a clear lens through which to make decisions, then you can just decentralize all the decision-making power. And people love to be empowered. They love to be able to make their own decisions. They love to not have to worry about making mistakes and not living in fear of failure or success or judgment. That's a lot of, you talk so brilliantly about fear. So, um, so what I have found now in this new kind of incarnation of myself, but of also the business that I run is that I hardly make any of the decisions. Now I'm there at the end of the day, the buck stops here, but day to day operationally, I have really made an effort to empower the people around me and nothing brings me greater joy than when someone really accomplishes something great for the collective that I had nothing to do with. And that is happening all the time. We have this, um, this women's health and happiness summit running right now, to be honest, I don't hardly know anything about it. This was completely concepted, built and distributed and run and organized in every way by the women in the company. And the company is mostly women. And to be honest, I don't know much about it, except that there's about 46,000 people in it. And, and, and you're in it, um, on the, not as a consumer, but as a teacher. And, um, and just watching that, I mean, what could possibly bring you greater joy? It's not really that different than the joy I see my children when they succeed in something. So those are some primary lessons that I learned the hard way. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have a mentor or a teacher. It was just a school of hard knocks. <laughs> oh my goodness. Thank you for sharing that. Because one, I loved Wonderlust. I love being a, a teacher for Wonderlust, but I know you went through a lot. <laughs> yeah. And people and things like that. But I appreciate you sharing your lessons because I definitely, as a growing entrepreneur, find those same lessons, especially in the need for personal and professional development of team and really focusing on the nurturing of team. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. And I want to dive a little bit deeper in your own personal development as you know, our biggest pillars of Get Loved Up is spirituality, well-being, and entrepreneurship. So can you share a little bit with me about like, was there anything spiritually that was really keeping you sane as you were learning all these lessons for the first time with no mentor? Yeah. Well, I, I, I didn't really have business mentors, but I did have um, spiritual mentors. And um, I would say the first one for me was Wayne Dyer. Um, and uh, I guess let me just preface by saying, if running Wanderlust didn't provide me with a plethora of spiritual teachers, then I, I would have been, you know, the most ridiculous human being on the, on the face of the planet. So Wayne Dyer uh, did come to Wanderlust in, um, in 2012 and I got to meet him and he, I would categorize him as my first spiritual teacher. Uh, I had a, a moment meeting him 
that was that made a significant impression on me, even though it was very, very brief. Um, he uh, he was kind of a big bear, loving, warm bear of a guy. And I know that you have um, a connection with him through Hay House. Um, and he was very affiliated with Hay House and Reed and, and Louise Hay, et cetera. Um, and he came to Wanderlust under the auspices of Hay House. I had done a partnership with Hay House that brought Wayne and Marianne Williamson at that point, who I had never met, um, who also became a very, very close friend, still is, and and mentor. Uh, but Wayne, when I met him backstage, I have these little tiny delicate piano hands and he has these like catcher mitt gloves of a hand and he just came over to me and almost like i felt like i was being enveloped by him <laughs> and he took my little tiny um delicate hand in into his and um and he kind of bent over and whispered in my ear and he said be ready and stay close to the work and and as I learned more about Wayne, uh, he really lived that ethos. You know, he was obviously well celebrated and traveled all over the world to kind of high profile conferences and there would be dinners and galas. And he never went to any of that stuff. He was always in the hotel room, reading, writing meditating and um and that message really stayed stayed with me um because as i evolved as a human uh, i became less concerned with um i suppose the ego um less concerned with what other people thought of me or basing my identity in my societal position or what I had or what my resume was or what I didn't have. And, uh, and I became more concerned with staying close to the work. And Wayne said a, another, he has another wonderful quote that, um, you know, has stayed in my uh, metaphorical kind of shirt pocket, which is um, the angels you wish to attract into your life will appear when they recognize themselves in you. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a great one. The angels you wish to attract into your life will appear when they recognize themselves in you. So just to merge those ideas together, if you stay close to the work, if you're really dedicated to the inner work, to self-examination, to self-criticism, to meditation, or whatever your practice happens to be, but, but oftentimes it revolves around a rigorous examination of your own mind, you know, such that you have a greater realization of your non-self, if you will. And the more time you spend cultivating that space, uh, the more others 
in your orbit will recognize that effort. And, uh, and for me, it's been, um, you know, listen, I've been so fortunate in every facet of my life. I am so grateful for what I've been given. Um, and, uh, and the angels really showed up and they're showing up every day for me. They're showing up right now, just being here with you. Uh, and, um, and this weekend, yeah, well, last weekend I was hosting Sadhguru in, um, in Topanga and there were, of course, um, these fires that created a bunch of road closures and, and other dangerous conditions and God bless our, our brave firemen for beating that back. And anyways, we'll be able to, to host him again. Um, but, uh, but I do find that there is sort of a river of opportunity um, that is flowing um, largely because uh, I think I've just tried to remain as close to the work as I possibly can. Um, and, uh, and I'm not out there kind of chasing my, my tail too much. <laughs> um, but there's been, you know, other uh, spiritual influences certainly in my life. Um, I mean, just to be honest, being a parent, uh, has been a quotidian, uh, affair in humility. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, uh, there's other ways to find capital L love outside of parenthood. Uh, but parenthood has some utility <laughs> um, to forcing yourself out of the out of the nucleus of your own life and you become an electron kind of almost in the outer shell of your own life looking in uh, you know my children you know when you would die unconditionally for someone you are truly realizing your non-self um, and your children sort of propel you into that realization. So that certainly has been a phenomenon in my life that has, that has helped me realize um, my better angels. Um, and then, you know, Marianne, who I mentioned before, was really useful in helping me see the connection between my own spiritual journey and and the world around me, particularly the socio-political world, and how um, there really isn't much difference between personal well-being and societal well-being. Um, and uh, as a reflection of all the inner work that you're doing, uh, true gratitude for me became the external good work and action that I do in recognition of the gifts I've been given. And, and, and for me, that's been an exercise in, in trying to better understand some of our political landscape and some of the social issues that seem to be pretty prescient right now. 
Absolutely. And oh, I love Marianne Williamson and Wayne Dyer. Um, both were two of my spiritual leaders as well. So I definitely um, feel like they are highly sought after in the spiritual world. But what I like about both of them is just their practicality and how they really break it down and make it simple for people. It's your time to step into your full power and potential. Are you tired of playing small and ready to make a big difference in the world? If your answer is yes, then the Wellness Entrepreneur Mastermind is for you. This mastermind will give you all the tools you need to turn your passion into purpose and live from a space of abundance as you let go of your limiting beliefs and negative self-talk. We coach you to thrive one week at a time, one goal at a time. We teach you what's working right now and what's not so you can position yourself as a community leader and create real change in the world. If you're ready to level up and stand in your power, then go to KoyaWeb.com forward slash mastermind to join our next group of wellness entrepreneurs. Space is limited and your time is now. So don't delay. Make a difference today. And um, speaking of kind of all that we're going through and the climate that we're going through, what has been your go-to as a father and a husband to deal with the dynamic of that for yourself? How do you say, well, and also for your family? Yeah, well, for me, it really is a meditation practice. Um, and I, I almost don't want to use that word because it's, uh, it, it almost instinctively invokes uh, a, a, an aroma of wafting frankincense <laughs> and, uh, and a distant sound of a saffron clad monk um, raking, <laughs> raking pea gravel or something. Um, my meditation practice is relatively convergent with my regular real life. It's, uh, and I think people have, uh, unless you're quite close to the practice, there's a confusion around its nature. Um, you know, you, you don't have to be, you know, wearing a robe and sitting in Lotus to be meditating. In fact, all it really is, is an examination of the workings of the mind such that greater insight is revealed. And this can take the shape uh, of myriad forms, if you will. You know, so often, particularly in our kind of media and political landscape, we tend to have emotional reactions based on the judgment of something, of an event, instead of the actual event itself. And this keeps us sort of in a place um, of, you know, constant fear and outrage and agitation um, that you don't have to, you know, move your head far to witness the kind of endless vitriol, particularly on social media, that gets hurled about um, around social and political issues uh, where people are consistently dehumanized. I mean, we're just simply not debating ideas. We're, we're debasing people. Mm -hmm. 
And we really just should be committed to eradicating bad ideas uh, and, and not dehumanizing people all the time. But, you know, we've kind of find ourselves in these binary oppositions on almost every issue. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Certainly the ad driven media model and social media uh, has contributed a lot to tribalism and pushing people to thin edges of the branch and, and, and into uh, the extremities. And I've tried to excavate that phenomenon quite a bit um, in my writing and, uh, and in my work. But, um, but I think that, you know, I, a lot of meditation is really just noticing the noticing. Mm-hmm. Is that for me, I can notice thoughts and emotions and sensations arise in consciousness and, and witness them as, as transitory phenomenon uh, and be able to name it of like, oh, wait a minute, that sensation in my body right now has the signature of outrage. Why am I feeling outraged right now? What just happened? What just triggered that response? Oh, that was a reaction to my judgment of that particular editorial that I just saw on my phone or whatever in my feed. Mm-hmm. And if you can, I think this is the first step, you know, in, in being able to recognize when you are being hijacked by your, your amygdala, you know, and when, you know, fear, as we've discussed, um, and to some degree, anger can be very useful in, in a whole variety of situations. Obviously, we don't live on the Serengeti anymore. Uh, most of our fear is, is psychological. Um, you know, anger can sometimes be channeled into positive action, certainly around social justice, but in other ways too. But to live in a place of constant fight or flight or, or cortisol infusion um, or the sympathetic nervous system is not a long-term profitable way to live. We need tools to bring us back into our parasympathetic nervous system where we can really employ reason and discernment and, um, rational examination of scenario. And that to me is insight. That is the, the, not the terminus, but a product of meditation. Um, so yes, you know, I certainly sit every morning and get my comfortable seat and start to breathe and, 
observe the phenomenon of my breath coming in and out and assign it something and then perceive sounds coming in and out of consciousness, just appearing and disappearing moment to moment. And then being able to move from there to be uh, to a certain sensitivity around how sounds are very similar to emotions, just arising and subsiding in consciousness. I didn't put them there. They're just coming and going. Um, I do engage in that practice every day, but I try not to leave it there. I try to punctuate my day with that practice in a, in such a way that it just becomes a natural part of living. And to be honest, I don't think humans have a tremendous amount of free will. This has been another part of study for me, but I do. It does appear that consciousness is focusable and we do have some agency in terms of where we put our attention moment to moment. And that attention is really all we have in this moment. And again, in this moment and, and again, in this moment and our ability to focus our attention can create almost a prior cause such that the next thing that arises is colored with that intention. So if we're able, so, you know, and, you know, I'll pause in a moment, but if we're able to recognize when we feel a sense of anger or outrage, and then just recognize that as a sensation or an emotion arising and subsiding in consciousness and not fixate on it and not identify with it, just watch it. And it's almost as soon as we witness it, it dissipates. I mean, as an example that anyone can, can identify with um, or associate with, this is like, you know, you have, you're going through some sort of pain, whether that's psychological or physical, let's just say you kind of twist your ankle a little bit and you're like, Oh my God, and you're fixating on it. Oh, it's like my life. I, what am I going to do? I'm supposed to do this. And, you know, in three weeks, I'm not going to be able to do that. And you start projecting, you know, into the future. Um, and then your mom calls and you pick up the phone and she's got great news and you're like, Oh my God, that's amazing. And all of that negative energy concentrated on your ankle has just disappeared. You're not thinking about it anymore. So we have that ability to focus our attention. And that just might be the most important skill we can cultivate uh, because I think it can lead to a life of certainly of reduced suffering and hopefully to a life uh, where the true nature of things is, is more greatly unveiled. I absolutely love that. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> I have to um, apologize for going along because I think it's important, like you said, to really understand that we are not our feelings and we are not our thoughts and they can be that you know my philosophy fear is feedback pain is feedback all these things and I feel that I love the way you are able to follow it and say okay 
what is this showing me? What is it teaching me? And I feel like the more that we do that, even when you talk about those bigger issues, the more that we start talking about this as communities, you know, having these conversations around, okay, what are these feelings and emotions telling us? The more we can really come together uh, to work things out. So speaking of that, speaking of coming together, speaking of that commune, um, let's get a little bit into the entrepreneurship and, and really your mission um, in life right now. Yeah, so commune really kind of emerged on the backside of Wanderlust. Um, you know, Wanderlust <clears throat> um, in a way had I, I basically accomplished, I think everything that there was to accomplish with it. And there were other elements involved. We had private equity partners and they needed their liquidity and that forced us into different things. And we could save that for another moment, but it, it became clear that the next chapter of my life um, was before me and I had to really meditate on, on what that was going to be. And, and I, I really wanted to be able to democratize access to a lot of these modalities and teachings that I felt were, were so critical both to personal wellness and, and societal well-being. And, uh, and I felt that, being able to provide that these teachings and amplify them digitally just gave them more scale. Um, Wanderlust was incredibly successful at bringing people together in real life. And that is critical. Um, but it, it, it did require significant resources and, and time and um, and I became very enamored with the notion that anyone with an internet connection could learn how to meditate or could learn yoga or could learn how to breathe, um, you know. And uh, so that was really one of the driving visions for Commune was really trying to expand access to these modalities that you know, have often been reserved for the affluent or often been seen as somewhat effete and coastal and, um, and not really accessible to the people that might actually need them the most. Um, so, so that was really one of the guiding principles. And then I was lucky enough to, to meet Oprah. And you mentioned that in the, in the opening, I'm always a little bashful uh, about being included on this list of super soul 100. Um, so I often refer to myself as number 99, but um, uh, there were no numbers given, but given who else is on that list, <laughs> I barely deserve to be on it. Um, but it did give me um, a little bit of access to her. Um, and I don't want to exaggerate that access, but, uh, but there was a moment where, um, you know, I, I had been very aware of the work that she had done with Deepak Chopra and, uh, she was sitting at this small table 
And I believe I said to her, uh, I think that you and Deepak should get married. And she, lo- <laughs> and she looked at me, she's like, you know, I'm already married. Like, who are you? And I was like, but yeah, but then you could be Oprah Chopra. Uh, <laughs> And she thought that was just dad jokey enough to like give me the time of day. And from there, I sort of pitched her this idea of like, well, you know, you've done all these meditation challenges with um, with Deepak that have um, enrolled hundreds of thousands of people into into the practice of meditation. How would you feel about doing something like that with yoga? It's sort of a pained look came across her face uh she's like jeff this this body was not made for yoga and i'm like come on you know it's like um and i'm like listen yoga doesn't have to be like popping up into a handstand on a whim you know don't don't we don't have to associate it with calisthenic asana um you know there's all these different components to yoga and I think, you know, it's such a valuable tool. So would you, would you be interested in partnering on, on such a project? And she said, yes. And, uh, and this was very generous. And, um, and she gave me access to a lot of brilliant people on her team that were kind of spoon fed me uh, a model for really enrolling a tremendous amount of people into some of these, uh, programs. And I really leveraged that model. Um, you know, I, I kind of beta tested a, a project with Skylar, my wife, who's a yoga teacher. And, um, and that was very successful. And, you know, I said, okay, well, this there, I think there's a, a model here for really being able to scale these teachings and I guess become the master class for well-being, if, if you will. And, um, and yeah, so, you know, it's been, really just a, a, um, a lot of fun, uh, super gratifying, both professionally and spiritually and personally, to work with all of these amazing teachers over the last three years, um, from Deepak to Marianne Williamson to Russell Brand and Wim Hof and you and Reverend Beckwith and, you know, oh God, just so many folks pretty much everyone who's influenced me in some way or another, um, but also doing courses on implicit bias, on leadership, on civics, on how to run for office. So really trying to bridge the world of, of personal wellness and societal well-being and civic engagement and really playing your part as a member of, of society and yeah, over the last three years, I think we've produced now 80 courses in our, on our platform and we've put 2.8 million people, uh, through one of those programs and built up, a uh, a loyal, um, a loyal following. And, uh, and yeah, we've just been able to build some really meaningful relationships along the way. Well, that is 
absolutely fabulous. I appreciate, I feel like everyone listening is going to get a lot out of this podcast episode. And I am so happy, you know, not only to call you a friend, but also a mentor um, as you helped me out with some recent hard times in, in my company and my business, you know, in addition to being able to have those classes, those opportunities to share um, with your community in Wonderlust and now in Commune. And I just think it is a joy because I know you during this time have had some hard conversations. And I think that's one of the things I respect the most about you, not only the conversations you share with me, but even this conversation and not being afraid to share like, hey, I'm not perfect. I don't get it all right, but I'm willing to have the conversation and talk about it and admit why I'm wrong. And I, I think, you know, earlier you were talking about the dehumanization of people. And I think it does take us, each one of us, humanizing ourselves and saying, you know, because we also live in a world of social media and highlight reels and thinking things like that. And I've learned um, it's very deeply, even more so in the last year, how important it is for us to be able to say, I've been through some things, some hard things, some good things, and, and, and talking about those things so that others can realize like, yeah, it, it, you know, yoga is not just about popping up into a handstand and going to Bali. It is about connecting with your breath and, and being really um, willing to talk about your pain. And so I just want to thank you so much for just being so authentic and, and sharing even about your, your family and, and the realness of that. Although we didn't really, I know we can literally talk for four hours. You're such a fun <laughs> to talk to because of that transparency. Um, so, but I am going to give um, everyone a little, a speed round with you um, where you're sharing out of all the things that you love, kind of your favorites. So the first question is, what is the favorite book that you've read in the last year? Oof, wow. Um, well, I've read so many books, so that's a really difficult one question. But I just read Young Pueblo's book. Uh, I think it's called Clarity and Connection. Mm -hmm. And we talk about almost the exact same things, except I'm way more grandiose in my word selection. And I so I'm almost jealous of how simple and poetic he is. So I would say in my most recent past, uh, the Young Pueblo book is, is in pole position. I love that. I've yet to read it, but it is on my list. So thank you. And then what is uh, one of the favorite podcasts outside of your own that you've been enjoying over the last year? Yeah, I listened to Sam Harris a tremendous amount, um, mostly because he's both triggering and confusing. <laughs> and I've really been honestly trying to lean into things that confuse me and trigger me as a method for personal growth. Mm. And, he, and he does that almost every time. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I really love that. And, uh, you know, we, we've gotten into those, those conversations about social justice and white supremacy and being very rare, even on my podcast, a white male, I want you to just share a little bit, like, how does it feel 
to come into the realization of some of the things, you know, you share with myself and others for the first time at this time in your life? Yeah, well, it's I, to not grow during this time is really just not to be trying. <laughs> um, you know, I went to South Africa in 1988 as a really young kid um, in high school to work at a career center in Soweto. I ended up doing a project on apartheid during that time. I then went on to university and studied American history with a focus um, on race relations. But I will say, despite all of that experience and education, I learned more autodidactically during the summer of 2020 about race and the history of race and the history of police and the history of the use of deadly force um, and the state of various inequities and the systems that produce those inequities and the media that then editorializes around that and again pits us against each other. I mean, it has been a time of intense growth around social justice, both on a, well, honestly, just on a personal level. I mean, if you're not engaging in an inventory about it, you're just not paying attention, really. Um, and the, the more that you're honest, intellectually honest about that inquiry, oftentimes it feels very confusing. Um, but if you are dedicated to pushing through that confusion, um, again, I think all that you're doing is unveiling what is already true. And this is why I don't really see my meditation practice as any different into a rigorous inquiry on racism and social justice. It's not really that different. It's just a, an, a sincere and rigorous inventory into the nature of things and realities. And oftentimes that's, that's really hard, you know, um, and it, it's really hard to feel complicit in certain things. It's really hard to not want to be silent. Um, and then also understand when is the appropriate time to listen and when silence is complicity. And we're all walking that tightrope. You know, and it's uh, and I, what I really wish is that there wasn't a third rail underneath that tightrope that we like you and I have been able to have some gritty, um, honest conversations about these issues. And on some level, like that's the only thing that stands between us and the world that we envision are these conversations. So we have to be able to have them. Mm 
you know, and there's every reason to care. Yes. That is so beautifully said. And I appreciate you again, just in my life, your words, your love, your support is just like absolutely phenomenal. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for just pouring into me as a person, um, supporting me not only with your communities that you've built wonderfully, um, but also with your love and your friendship. I, I really appreciate you. <laughs> um, thanks. It, did, it really means the world to me to to build a friendship um, with people that are so spectacular and so inspirational, so dedicated to the work. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm particularly grateful for you. <laughs> Thank you. And I think one time we were talking about just how different we are and how different people, and you usually try to find your child, the people that are just like you. And I <laughs> That we have in common that we're not only just looking for people just like us we also want to have conversation with people that have different thoughts and different opinions and look differently because again as you said that is how we grow oh, yeah yeah awesome. yeah if you can't be wrong how are you gonna grow <laughs> right yeah you it's like wrong. if you're right about everything then you've reached the terminus there's no more room <laughs> So, you know, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong and I am virtually every day for the betterment of society. Right. And the yeah. better because when you look at someone else's perspective, it's just different, you know, and it's that willingness to, even if you didn't want to pay the card of right or wrong, to be able to acknowledge a perspective different than yours actually exists. And that is to be human to know that we are all uniquely different. So that is actually the truth that there is always a reality in every single person's reality that is outside of our own. Yeah. I mean, there is, consciousness is only one subjective experience of what it is like to be them. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, I want to be mindful of the parameters of your show here because <laughs> uh, I feel like we could probably go on for quite a long time ab about that. But, you know, true empathy, true, the donning of ones of someone else's emotional clothing can be so difficult if you feel diametrically opposed from them on a particular political issue, particularly, but any issue. And, and these are the conversations that I've tried to really lean into, you know, to have those conversations with, to be honest, like rural white Americans who supported Trump. I've had a lot of those conversations over the last year. And um, because I want to understand, you know, I want to listen to understand not listen just to respond or react. Um, and, you know, as deranged as I think Trump is, and we, I don't want to take your podcast in that direction, I have found real compassion for people that got, that received a sense of agency from him, a sense of connection and a sense of community. Um, and it's been really like whew, a personal challenge to get my head around that. Um, but it's also been uh, an opportunity 
you know, for growth. And, you know, if we can't find ways to bridge these chasms, then I'm not really sure what the future of society looks like. I mean, the greatest achievements that humanity has ever made have been predicated on our ability to cooperate flexibly at scale often. Um, and, you know, you can apply that to the pyramids or you can apply that to, you know, the building of the, this great, flawed, messy country. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I am really committed to those conversations because I feel that having coherence socially is really important to solving problems. So happy to be doing that with you. <laughs> That's powerful. And I have no context around keeping um, the questions short at all. I always <laughs> let people go off. And the last question, if you could wake up tomorrow and this would be Jeff's world, this world that you think could be this amazing place, what would mm. it look like? Ooh. <laughs> well, it would certainly be a whole hell of a lot more compassionate um, uh, I am a believer in the enlightenment or some of the principles of the enlightenment where we have developed tools and methods, um, that have been very useful to kind of understanding the world, um, ideas of, you know, like the scientific method, hypothesis and experiment, observation, reasoning, modification, conclusion, really being able to leverage reason and rational thought in our decision making. And I think the world that I would envision would marry that with universal spiritual truths. And uh, oftentimes, you know, science has to exist by its nature as a value neutral process because you don't want to bias it. But oftentimes, because we've not overlaid a society that values empathy and love and compassion, science gets then used for nefarious purposes. Um, so what I imagine is, a, I suppose, a new enlightenment that alloys some of these spiritual values and principles that seem to appear over and over again across every religion and be able to um, alloy that with um, reason and rationality and innovation and technology and some of the better things that science and, and the enlightenment have uh, have given us i think that's absolutely beautiful because with spirituality you actually acknowledge that everything is constantly changing so once you study and make a scientific proof of it it's actually going to change it to something else so. yeah. well what we need are these these flexible and protein methods for understanding the world that, that constantly ask why and that can change i mean this is you know i don't want to uh, go on an, an indictment of Abrahamic religions right at this juncture. But, um, but, you know, they seem very ossified and codified. They don't off, they're not really able to um, adapt and 
and transform to some of the more modern problems that we have. So I do think that, you know, science does, is able to recognize um, that the world changes and that we constantly need to be in discernment to understand the, the nature of reality. Um, but oftentimes, you know, in, in the pursuit of that, uh, some of these principles get lost. And, you know, we're such an individuated culture. Um, and that notion of the individuated, individuated self seems to permeate every component of our life from religion to politics to the economy to even arts, you know, where sort of beauty is in the eye of the beholder. There, there seems to be kind of relativism, relativism everywhere. Um, and I think, you know, we really do need a correction where, yes, transformation and enlightenment has to happen on an individual level, but the terminus of that process is the recognition of connection and interdependence and the non-self and virtually every mystic and sage, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Gandhi, whatever, they're all prattling on about the same thing, which is nirvana, a realization of the non-self, Brahman, the fact that we are just modifications of a greater self, unity consciousness or Christ consciousness. Every spiritual tradition seems to, there seems to be a consilience that's shared there um, that, that seems to like reveal the illusory nature of, of self, of like that somehow we are this stable, reliable, individual, individualized entity separate from others, living in this exter external universe, in competition with each other, separate from nature, separate from the divine, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we really need to forge a pathway uh, towards a acknowledgement of our interconnectedness um, and 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 interdependence. So <laughs> that's a that's a strange <laughs> world that one would imagine. <laughs> I think I like your world. I think it's I think it's pretty cool. I'd be down. I'd be down for living in your world. And I could talk to you for another hour right now, and we could just go on forever. But. Uh, I probably will definitely have you on again and we'll have much more to talk about like five years from now. Okay, let's go back to that podcast. But I just want to thank you again so much for coming on today. It's been a joy to have you and just for everyone to find you out there in the ethers, where would they go? Oh, I rant and rave on Instagram um, at Jeff Krasno. But really, I think... Um, you know, the reflection of my work right now is really within the uh, sphere of commune. And so go to onecommune.com. Um, I have a podcast there. I write a weekly column that gets uh, um, proliferated out uh, through our, our newsletter. And, uh, but more importantly, we just um, are hosting some of the just the greatest teachers um, on the platform. And there's so much to, to learn there. In fact, uh, that's where I go <laughs> to learn right now. And, you know, I, and there's a lot of different 
ways to go. So I did recently a deep dive on regenerative agriculture. Uh, maybe that's the topic of our next podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, I certainly appreciate this opportunity um, as part of the mission to, to be able to spread some of these teachings. So thanks so much. Thank you so much. And go ahead and check out Jeff at One Commune and on social media. Let us know what you love the most from this podcast. Like, what were your takeaways? There were so many. So um, just share with us on social media things you didn't agree with. We want to hear that, too. So, again, thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, go ahead and drop us a review. Let us know what you like what you don't like, um, and just take a screenshot of it and email me, koya at koyaweb.com, and I got an amazing gift for you. Thank you so much, and until next time, love yourself, love others, and love the world, one day at a time, one breath at a time. Peace and love. I just want to take a moment to say thank you for being part of the Get Loved Up community. I like to share topics and people making a positive impact in the world, and your feedback means the world to me. If you haven't already left a review, please leave a five-star review and let me know what you want to hear more of on the show. I'm here for you, and together, we're making the world a better place, one day at a time, one show at a time. Thank you for listening.